Strange Ride is brought to you commercial-free through the generous support of our patrons. Visit strangerideshow.com and click on Donate to help keep the history of the weird on the digital airwaves. We're back, friends, for the second installment of our short series, two-part series, on Starship's song, We Built This City, in parentheses on rock and roll. This is a number one song uh, that has been called uh, the worst song in the history of rock and roll, if or, or of the 80s. It really depends on which publication you read. Uh, and so here we are uh, to finally get around to the actual song. We're going to continue our history. Uh, we concluded last episode with uh, the Jefferson Airplane. Uh, the band was just about to break up, and I'm going to go ahead and break them up as soon as we start here today on our history again and we'll go through jefferson starship one of the greatest bands of the 70s in my humble opinion uh, and then finally end up in the starship years where you can look forward to some deep textual analysis on my part of the lyrics of we built this (laughs) (laughs) and the music video i'm going to give you everything today friends it's going to be such a treat savannah is already on the edge of her seat my name is Dr. Rob C. Thompson, uh, and I am your co-host here on Strange Ride, taking the mic for my first multiple-part episode of Strange Whoa. Ride. Uh, but generally, I am listening intently to Savannah telling me some crazy-ass bullshit. Uh, <laughs> Savannah Barrett is your your regular host here on Strange Ride, Savannah. Hello, welcome back. I'm I'm excited to learn more about this. Now I'm wishing that I had re-listened to this song and watched the music video before this, but it'll be fine. <laughs> yeah, it's all right. I'll, I'll give you a play-by-play. Uh, okay, <laughs> that works for me. <laughs> of course, Andrew Mims, our rock and roll uh, expert, is here with us. Howdy, hi, everybody. Yeah, how have things been for you since last we discussed the airplane? Uh, pretty good. Pretty, pretty good. good. Pretty good. Didn't die. Did, did, you, did you watch any 80s music videos? I always watch 80s music oh, videos. Oh, okay. So just on repeat it's a in the background. Yeah, it's a constant. <laughs> and I want to give a shout out. Neil uh, Sigmund is here for us. Neil did, uh, did the voice of Paul Cantner on our last episode. Neil, say hi to the good people. Uh, good evening, uh, or whenever you're listening to this. Whenever. It could be any time. It could be the middle of the night. It could be Where, the middle wherever. of the day. Mm-hmm. If or it's wherever. evening, good evening. If it's not, Neil's a vampire. And I also want to give Evangeline Olsen a shout out for doing uh, Grace Slick for us. Uh, no, those are not the voices of the actual musicians, but uh, both uh, Neil and, and uh, Evangeline did a fantastic job of capturing their voices for us. They both studied uh, on YouTube the, uh, in the, the, the patterns of, of the voices of these two historical figures. Uh, so thank you to both of them. All right. We got to get into this. We should do a little bit of plugging, should we not, Savannah? Patreon is a thing. Head it on is. Over. We finally posted an episode. Uh, we Rob and I talked about the Barbie movie, which was fun, and he made me not like it as much as I did. Sorry, I ruined it <laughs> for Savannah. But now I'm trying to make you love '80s music videos. So <laughs> good luck. You're you're Rob, fighting an uphill battle. Rob taketh away. Rob giveth. Mm, sure. <laughs> 80s music is fine it's fine but <laughs> nothing wrong if you like it but now we're talking about something completely differently That's than patreon true. but yes we did post a patreon episode and then we also have other ones well i mean a call confessions oh, yeah. on there a which there's a ton of things on there i'm on a couple of breeze episodes i remember doing slender man talking about all the slender man murders in real culture-y. life and stuff yeah. it was interesting yeah it yeah. was cool got a lot of true crime over there 
So go check it out. You got to become a patron for as little as $2 a month. You can have access to our full library of bonus episodes, content, etc. And uh, yes, if you are exclusively a Strange Ride listener, you, you happy few, then uh, you we are going to start adding stuff. We want to, yes. Yeah. It's like... I feel bad that because I keep saying I want to do these things and then it just never happens. We're gonna do it. But yeah, I really want to talk about Baldur's Gate, but Luke has a baby and he's always busy. <laughs> well, I mean, here's the good thing. So uh, we'll make an announcement to the audience. Savannah's just taken a job working with me here at the college, so mm-hmm. we're gonna be around. Uh, you, you already are around a lot, but you're gonna be around somehow more. So. <laughs> oh, God. That will give us ample time for podcasting, I'm sure. That's true. Yeah. Yes. Uh, and yeah, and then be sure to, we have a, a, an Occult Confessions Discord where we talk about Strange Ride on there too. I'm relatively active on there. So like if you ever want to talk about Strange Ride stuff, I'm happy to, to do that. And then also please give us stars and reviews. Yeah, please feed us those stars. We are a young, new, tiny podcast and we need that love in order to grow. Mm-hmm. I'm very insecure and really need <laughs> people telling me I'm doing good. <laughs> We don't have that Taylor Swift algorithm stuff going on for us quite yet. So, yeah, feed us them them stars. Shall we pledge the pledges? Yes. I solemnly commit commit myself myself to keep keep my my hands, arms, feet, and legs inside the vehicle at all times while on this strange ride. I think I'm getting the hang of it. Good. It's about time. (laughs) (laughs) We've had how many episodes now? Like, this will be 12, I think? So many. The band members of Jefferson Airplane were beginning to separate. The pressures of being one of the biggest acts in American music and all of the responsibilities of touring and recording that come with that role had been wearing on them. Marty Balin wrote the airplane's love ballads and was often belittled by others, particularly Kalkinen and Cassidy, for the light weight of his contributions. He threatened to quit many times, but after Thanksgiving in 1970, the band members suddenly noticed that they hadn't seen him in a while. The man who'd co-founded the group had quietly and without announcement left. Whoa. So just dipped and then they just didn't notice for a bit? Yes, and this won't be the last time. What? Yeah. How did... (laughs) Palin is such a character. How long... Did it happen where they didn't... I think like, it was he, a few months where they were like, where's Marty been? What? I, that's my guess. It's Could sort of imagine? how it reads. That would be like... <laughs> yeah, that's... It's like, possible in the alchemical actors. Like, I don't I know. Guess, oh, yes. I guess. Like, it's, it's possible, but like, whenever somebody wouldn't show up for band practice in, in my in my experience, if they didn't answer their phone, we drove to their house. Oh. <laughs> that's a metal band, though. We you guys should, are serious. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> We, we should start doing that. Yeah. Oh, oh boy, yeah. Because some of their houses are in, like, Seattle. <laughs> um, <laughs> and Calgary. Just book a plane. Slick and Kantner had split off into their own camp, uh, and Kalkinen and Cassidy sort of formed their... So the, the band split into two factions, with Kalkinen and Cassidy on one side and Kantner and Slick on the other side. Um Slick had enjoyed trysts with all of the band members except for Marty Balin, although there are many stories of her propositioning him on stage in front of audiences. 
Um, but Balin never took her up on that. There was clearly no attraction between them. Interesting. Uh, she was drunk whenever she was propositioning him, oh. so I would guess yeah. this. I was about yeah. to say, well, it's his loss, but, the, yeah, but that doesn't sound very I'll, fun. I'll also toss in there that Grace Lick had a night with Jim Morrison, um, so FYI, it's it a weird encounter. I can't get into the details right now because it's a separate story, but... It was a weird encounter. Hmm. Like you would expect with Jim Morrison. Yeah, I was about to say, it's Jim Morrison. There's nothing not weird with Jim Morrison. Yeah, it's not like you're, ha- like, it's not like a romance novel. You're not, like, made sweet love to by Jim Morrison. There's, like, you know, strawberries that, for some reason, like, come out of the bed and, like, you know, chocolate rains down from the ceiling. And then Who Jim, is Morrison, Jim Morrison, the lead singer of The Doors. I don't think I've ever heard of that band either. A hippie dies every time Savannah asks a question like that. <laughs> Somewhere in America, a hippie keels over. Oh, they're at that age. <laughs> yeah, they are at that age. We, we miss you guys. Anyhow, uh, she had had trysts, is what I was saying, um, and settled into relationship with Paul Kantner, which is not a surprise. They are easily the mo- two most intense human beings in the band, which is Wasn't saying something. Wasn't she in a relationship when she got into the band? Yes, she was. She was married. That's over. That's ah. been over for a long time. Oh, well, yeah. I don't remember us ending that, so. Yeah, that's over. Okay. That's well, how marriages ended in the 60s and the 70s. They just, just stopped talking sort of like to each Marty other Ballin. one day. You just stopped showing up. You just stopped showing up. <laughs> Um, one day she announced to Kantner uh, that she'd like to have a kid uh, <laughs> and China Wing Kantner was born on the 25th of January 1971 could you spell that for me I'm just curious China. as to how, how it's spelled just like, China just yeah. like the country yes Kantner and Slick were obsessed with the country of China oh. and they I mean I, su- I suppose Grace Slick still does love the culture of China so they named their child after a country that they both loved quite a bit that's kind of weird it's something yeah <laughs> uh and china uh, let me say uh went on to become like a vj when there were vjs on mtv she oh, was shit. an mtv vj in at that time you know in the 80s 90s when that <laughs> when you could do that as a job a vj a vj instead yeah. of a disc jockey video jockey video jockey oh. yeah and uh what else do i want to say about china uh, i you can watch an interview of her a howard stern interview uh, is available on youtube uh, it's of her and mom with and and she's with her boyfriend china and howard stern asks lots of uncomfortable questions the way howard stern did back when he was howard stern and not whatever he is now um anyway so that's worth checking out so she china Kantner. the point i'm trying to make is she was kind of a public figure sort mm. of like um moon unit uh zappa was did a lot of interviews with frank in the 80s she was on letterman with him and that kind of thing so that the like the hippie kids when they got into the 80s tried to get their kids into the business in one way or another mm. Moon Unit, by the way. This is just what you named your kids. That's just a cool fucking name. Yeah, so China is just like in the tradition of how hippies name their children. Wasn't um, Beyonce's kid Blue Ivy or something? Like, that's kind of a strange name. Uh, same idea. They really yeah. draw it, but the original, the original strange names came from this generation. Northwest, yeah. Kim Kardashian's kid. Yeah, they're just... It took me way too long to catch the pun. <laughs> Kantner and Slick, uh, by the way, released an album separate from the other members of the airplane called Sunfighter, set around the theme of bringing a new child into the world, and it featured a picture of China on the album cover, long before Nirvana would do it. A naked baby is being held up in the sun. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, but this baby didn't sue them. 
no this baby did i mean i assume china never sued mom uh <laughs> that baby sued nirvana yeah, yeah the, very recently. the nirvana baby sued uh the like kirk cobain's estate and the surviving members of nirvana why uh, okay Wait, the rights to the picture it's about the rights to the picture yeah, it's, it's the rights to the picture he technically couldn't consent because he was you know a baby who was thrown into a pool <laughs> <laughs> He's, Savannah finds legal issues hilarious. <laughs> I mean, it is pretty funny. It, 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 no, yeah. What do you think about it? it it's true. <laughs> they just chucked a baby. I just never thought about that, how they just chucked a baby into a But it comes down to the fact that he doesn't get royalties or anything, right? It, yeah, that's I think what so. it really that's... boils down to. Anyhow, China's all good. She's she's She inherits mom and dad's estate. Um, it's like a soul alive. Kantner was also creating an ambitious concept album called Blows Against the Empire. This is an incredible album. Sunfighter is also a very good album, by the way. Um, but this is a series of songs telling the story of a group of young people who escape a dying planet aboard a starship. The album's sci-fi concept was so fully realized that it was nominated for a Hugo Award, an honor generally reserved for science fiction novels. Oh. Yeah. That's cool. For their part, Calcutin and Cassidy had formed a new band called Hot Tuna, which still plays, I think, today. Huh. Um, and this was a blues and long jams kind of band, so you would just go there and sit for eight hours and get high, that kind of thing. Oh, that sounds like so much fun. <laughs> People are into this, man. They didn't have Baldur's Gate in the 60s. They didn't. Well, this is the 70s, so they had a little Baldur's Gate. No, they didn't have it at all. No. They did no, not. but they had Dungeons and Dragons at that <laughs> yeah, point, which is a step towards it. Uh, but I'm not done with Calcutta and Cassidy because after the 1972 Winter Olympics, they both became obsessed with speed skating and <laughs> they started to speed skate obsessively. <laughs> These people are so weird. <laughs> They're hippies. They're the best. <laughs> uh, also, the band fired Spencer Dryden, replaced him with Joey Covington, yet another drummer. Aww. Yeah, now their drummer bites. We lost this one in a bizarre gardening accident. <laughs> yes. Uh, so the airplane was also bringing in new talent. I want to introduce you to another uh, important character in this story. That is Papa John Creech, who joined the band of 30-somethings uh, when he was 55. Uh, so he was a black musician, a violinist, um, who ended up playing with both Hot Tuna and the Airplane and then Starship. Creech had studied or Jefferson Starship, not Starship. Mm-hmm. Uh, Creech had studied the violin at the Conservatory of Music in Chicago and in 1943 had actually been one of the first to play the electric violin. Oh, oh that's rad. Yeah, he's yeah. a pretty cool dude. He also appeared in the classic noir movie, The Blue Gardenia. Uh, you can see him in the band standing beside Nat King Cole uh, who is playing the title song of the Blue Gardenia at the time, or at least appearing to, because you didn't actually play the song in the movie. You recorded it. Yeah. Um, but anyway, he's he, he did a little bit of acting, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Like, that's a major movie from that time period. And you sh- everyone should see that movie, too. It's a really good movie. He began performing on the cruise ship, the SS Catalina, and then appeared as a soloist at the Parisian Room in Los Angeles, where he ended up connecting with the airplane's newest drummer, Joey Covington, Creech became a key part then of the sound, as I said, for Hot Tuna. And uh, more importantly, in my mind, his violin became a core part of what you hear in Jefferson Starship music. Nice. There is no Jefferson Starship 
song, I think, without that Papa John Creech electric violin bringing it on home. I love the violin. It's pretty cool. I fell in love with a band called Fish in a Birdcage because they use a violin in like every single one of their songs. It's a great band. See? I was one of the, I was uh, on my YouTube rep. I was the top 0.1% of listeners for Fish in a Birdcage. Well, I guess they're more of an esoteric band, right? So that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I yeah. think I might be the only person listening to them. See? But they're really good. So You're you a burgeoning Star Jefferson Starship fan as well. Sure. See? <laughs> yeah. In theory. In theory. With Kalkinen and Cassidy off speed skating, uh, also heating up some tuna, Kantner put together a new band. David Freiberg had been an important part of the early days of the San Francisco Sound as a member of the Quicksilver Messenger Servants. Quicksilver, Big Brother, and the Holding Company, like these were all the big psychedelic acts of the late 60s. Craig Chakiso, a guitar prodigy, was only 15 years old when Paul Kantner drafted him. He was a complete unknown, and critics speculated that the name Chakiso was a pseudonym for someone like Carlos Santana. That's how good he was. Shit. Oh. Yeah. Uh, Peter Kalkinen, Yorma's younger brother, came in to play bass. So Yorma Kalkinen leaves the band with Cassidy, and his brother joins the band. Weird. That's got to be yeah. an awkward like family dinner. I, I mean, the thing about Kalkinen and Cassidy is that there was no bad blood. When they quit, I mean, the airplane ended. They didn't quit the airplane. The airplane ended. Gotcha. I mean, that's really what I'm talking about here. The airplane ended, and Kalkinen and Cassidy went off and did their duet blues long jam thing. And Kantner and Slick said, well, we're not done. What do we do now? Let's put together another band. I got gotcha. you. Okay. And Peter, Peter Kalkinen apparently was, was going to be in it. John Barbata, who had played with the Turtles, joined in on the drums. The Turtles, best known for Happy Together, Eleanor. No? None of that? Is that the, I can't see me? Yeah, yeah, that's, yeah, yeah, yeah. I know that one. Sweet. Because <laughs> they play it in like every movie ever, it yeah, feels it's, like. It's a common, or all those old movies. It's a good song, though. My oh, kids yeah. love that song. It's a good song. <laughs> Uh, and then Eleanor was actually a satire of Happy Together because the record company asked them to produce another Happy Together and they were like, screw you, and they did Eleanor. But then Eleanor also shot up the top of the credits. <laughs> it's just kind of how it goes. Nobody got the satire. Anyhow, uh, Barbada joins the band as the drummer uh, and Pete Sears rounded out the group on keyboards. Pete Sears actually played on no less than four Rod Stewart albums. And after he moved to California to join Jefferson Starship, Rod Stewart would continue to call him to come back to England to record. (laughs) That's how good he was. So these are all excellent musicians, is what I'm Uh trying to say. The year was 1974, and the Jefferson Airplane had become the Jefferson Starship. I allowed Paul to steer me and some other loose cannon musicians into Jefferson Starship a veritable gold record machine, as it turned out. The drug-fueled anomalous lyrics of Jefferson Airplane smoothly shifted into the more languid boy-slash-girl laments that made up the critical mass of popular songs of the post-hippie decades. Now it was Marty's turn to be the focus of attention. Languid? Languid boy-girl laments. What does the word languid mean? Uh, Basically, she's saying that all of Jefferson, like she's she's taking their one of their greatest hits which was miracles and she's painting the whole band with this song it's a seven and a half minute song where marty balin sings the word baby no less than 50 times hmm. oh baby baby 
Okay. It's it's like mu- music that you would have sex to in 1975. Okay, sure. I definitely know what that's like. <laughs> You've never had sex in 1975. I'll be, I'll be real with you, Rob. I don't. I don't think. I, I don't think I, I had sex in 1975. We didn't do our research for but this. But you know, it's like it's properly. like Luther Van. Like it's got that like sexy slow kind of quality to it okay anyhow <laughs> I, i'm a, I, i'm working really hard to get savannah to understand this but i am going to make the point that slick was mischaracterizing her own music uh, because she was very self-deprecating so she would uh. always describe her own work in a self-deprecating fashion uh, it's true that jefferson starship was a far greater commercial success than the airplane but they had not nearly sold out to the degree that they would eventually in the 1980s as starship minus the jefferson as slick suggested jefferson starship is supposed to have been a poppier version of the airplane with cleaner easier music but that wasn't uniformly the case the band members kept one leg in the experimental and esoteric as they churned out the hits. I think particularly Paul Kantner with his space obsession, that never goes away. The conventional wisdom is that the airplane was the real deal, Jefferson Starship was more commercial, and then Starship was a commercial disaster. But like <laughs> most simple characterizations, this one is incredibly reductive. And by commercial disaster, I mean a disaster that was highly marketable. Um, so Slick and Kantner were often responsible for the deeper cuts on the Jefferson Starship albums, which weren't as commercially successful as Marty Balin's songs. By the way, Marty Balin's back. Um, <laughs> Welcome back, Marty. <laughs> Welcome back, Marty. <laughs> he never intended to leave. He was just waiting for everybody at Thanksgiving, and they never showed. Um, so he oh. got the wrong address. He'd been sitting at dinner for several years. Just he was waiting. not one of the ones that got obsessed with skating, right? No, no, no. Okay. That, Marty Balin was the male singer <laughs> that, who Grace Lake would not sleep with, even though she slept with all the other band members. Yeah. Oh, it sounds and like he the wouldn't sleep with, with her. Yes, I think that's true. Um, <laughs> I but think he that's an important distinction. He was the guy at the beginning of the episode, yes. uh, the, uh, the ser- that started the, uh, the band. Okay, so, um, so Balin's songs ended up being the big chart toppers. But my personal favorite tracks on the albums are often the Kantner and Slick songs, which are full of depth and mystery. Let's take, for example, Slick's and Sears' contribution to their first album, Dragonfly. Their song, Hyperdrive, which goes for more than seven minutes and doesn't have a chorus. Oh. Just think about that for a second. Mm -hmm. Begins, let me just quote you some lyrics here. I never thought there were corners in time until I was told to stand in one. I've heard circles moving right through corners, and they don't even know they've been around and around before. I'm not done. Slick sings, If it rains again tonight, I can think light years ahead, or I can put myself back a thousand years ago, as if I had been here before, or as if I am still to be born. I'm a slow loser, but I'm a fast learner. That much I know. Ah, yes, Grace, the same old boy-girl stuff. (laughs) (laughs) Uh Uh-huh. I mean, you see my point. Also, this song, like, contra all laws of radio, right? Three minutes, 30 seconds. That's a radio song. So the song's too damn long. In the 70s, a lot of people cheated that, and they got away with it. Miracles is a long song, and that was a a huge hit for them. But this song also has the nerve to end, but not end. It has a false ending where you think it's over, and then Grace Slick's voice comes back in again, which is (laughs) awesome. 
I, I love that shit. Right, but not really great for the radio. No, hor- yeah. hor- horrible for, like, marketing. Right, yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, the Beatles got up to that occasionally. But never to this degree. Like, the Beatles actually would, like, play with it on their albums, but th- this is in the song. <laughs> like, it's intentional. I mean, I guess it's intentional for the Beatles. Anyhow. So that's Hyperdrive. Um, on Red Octopus, Slick sings one of my favorite of all of her songs, Fast Buck Freddy. She says, hold a dollar bill up to the mirror and I'll show you something funny. It's only a fast buck, but it's so hard to make that kind of money. I still don't know what that means, <laughs> but I love it. <laughs> Some of y'all out there who are like, you know, blaring your Taylor Swift in your good mood. This is what I blare in my good mood is Fast Buck Freddy. <laughs> Sing it now while you still have a song. Grab it now while you're still feeling strong. Well, that's nice. It is. Those are yeah. nice lyrics. It's very positive. Uh, there's nothing quite like that, really, to burn it dry before the fire is gone. Just keeps you, get, get you in the mood. Ready to take on the world. Two albums later, Kantner Slick Balin and Balin's friend Jesse Barish would share writing credit with Thunderhawk and Ogallala Sioux, who Balin had befriended on the song St. Charles. Again, not boy-girl stuff. Balin and company sing, She is the storm bringer, the storm changer. Tie yourself down to the main mast like Ulysses in the water storm. Wind's coming down the main line. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this is not poppy schlock, is no. the point I'm trying to make. This isn't even about a relationship, really. Uh-huh. There's a lot more going on in these lyrics. Jefferson Starship sounded a lot more like the popular arena rock that would go on to dominate the classic rock airwaves for decades afterwards. They were like Boston or Journey or Foreigner, all masters of the power ballad. And Balin was a remarkably talented artist in that genre, as much as Steve Perry or Brad Delp, although he's not often given, I think he's not adequately credited. Like Steve Perry and Journey, (laughs) they're arena rock gods but I don't think Marty Balin's name is spoken of in this context as often today, and it should be. Hmm. Oh, absolutely. Um, but I also want to note, in contrast to Journey, Foreigner, and Boston, that Jefferson Starship maintained an artsy edge that often hid around the corners of every album they created, putting them in the company of more experimental artists like Yes or King Crimson or even early Alan Parsons Project. I know that band sells out kind of hard in the 80s, but early Alan Parsons like they did a whole concept album on Edgar Allan Poe so I'm not trying to sell you Alan Parsons right now uh, but I'm trying to sell you Jefferson Starship I think they are more like Yes and King Crimson and Alan Parsons and their highly literate lyrics kept them in the company of Steely Dan or the police although they're rarely acknowledged for their lyrics unlike Steely Dan or the police Jefferson Starship was neither pure pop nor pure art house, and that's why they're still worth listening to today, in my opinion, but they were not on any, like, you know, superlative in any area. They were just sort of, like, blending all these elements, and I think that's why they're often overlooked. They're kind of a, like, lack of a better term, a bridge band. Yeah. That, like, if you're trying to get more into the artsy stuff. You start off at Boston, you go to Jefferson Starship. <laughs> yes. and then... yeah. yeah, yeah. start off with more than a feeling, then you can work your way up to St. Charles, and then you're listening to King Crimson. Um, it's a gateway drug. It's a gateway drug. In Mark, a way, I mean... Yeah, you were talking about this last episode. Yeah, yeah, like, um, like with, with heavier music, you don't just start off with, like, 
like grindcore. Like you get into it through like you listen to Metallica when you're 12, and then you start to like listen to heavier stuff and heavier stuff. It's the same sort of thing. Yeah. Marty Balin was not a member of Jefferson Starship initially. That's why I didn't list him when they were forming the band. Uh, but he contributed a song to their first album, and that song was called Caroline. I could do an entire playlist of songs called Caroline that I love, by the way. I have never had a woman named Caroline in my life, and yet I love all songs about her. My stepsister is <laughs> named Caroline. Is, there, is mm-hmm. she really? Yeah. I live in the county. Yeah, it sucks. Yeah. It's... Is, um, <laughs> is Sweet Caroline on that list? No. I can even live without that one. And I've still got a, a robust list. I feel of... like that was a, some fighting words. What about the version that it replaces the da-da-da's with gunshots? Yeah, I'm open to that. I'm open to that. Is it Neil Diamond? And it's all the same except yeah, they it's, replace... it's all the same except somebody just adds in just... <laughs> just bat, bat, bat. But they take out the vocals? No, no. Like, it's it's just the song. Uh-huh. But they add in... Oh, on top of yeah, the... Yeah, on top of... Oh, I yeah. see. Interesting. Delightful. It's art. <laughs> uh, so, so this is how it happened then. Marty Balin was not in the band on album number one, um, Dragonfly. But he contributed that one song, and that one song would go on to become a fan favorite. So does that mean there was no bad blood between them two? But he kept threatening to quit. Who was he threatening to quit against? Marty the Balin? speed skaters? <laughs> well, he didn't threaten. He just left. No, but you said that yes, he threatened speed to quit skaters, a bunch of times. Yes, I think the speed skaters were really hardest on him because they were the cool blues guys. Oh. And they wanted to do their long jams and stuff and oh. play the guitar. And, and Balin was like, like, oh, you're like poppy bullshit or whatever. Right, yeah. Okay. Balin wanted to write about love. Gotcha. Yeah. Well, fuck that noise. That's so boring. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> There's so many songs about love, but only one about the boys being back in town. That's, that's what was I talking about? The song would go on to become a, uh, okay. So Caroline would go on to become a fan favorite. It was Bride the Tiger that made the singles charts off of that album and helped boost the album up to number eleven. Palin then became a regular member of the group, promising to do three albums with them. Hmm. So Palin's always a, a little like. He's not like, yes, I'm all in. Let's do this. It's People like, love me. I'm back. He was like, he's like yeah, I'll do three. I'll do and three. Yeah. We'll see where it goes. From <laughs> or maybe just three. Maybe you'll become speed skaters and I'll hate you. <laughs> yeah, I, I got to watch out for these speed skaters. Um, so uh, he was the eighth member when the band created their second album, Red Octopus. That feels like a lot of members. It's a big band, but it's the 70s. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. I, I don't know the average number of bandmates. What would you say, Mims, is the average number of band... Not a ska band, mind you. Uh, so if, if we're talking a ska band, that's that's like 12. About like, 35. Yeah, like your, your average... Trumpet section alone is bigger than your average yeah. band. No, like it, your average is like four or five. Yeah, that's what yeah. I was thinking. Yeah, it's Beatles size. That's normal band. Depends uh, on if your singer can play guitar, too. But they've got a violinist, they've got a male and a female vocalist. So even the airplane with five or six members was generally a bit larger. Mm-hmm. So eight is, it's, it's in range. Um, so Red Octopus is what we're talking about. And Red Octopus was their, their big one. This time, Balin's single Miracles went all the way up to number three. The song was twice as long as it should have been for the radio, as I mentioned. Um, so they released a version that lasted three minutes and 25 seconds, which is the perfect length for pop music. 
Um, see, for example, and I'm picking on her a lot today because she's a billionaire and I'm not, Taylor Swift songs. The song is languid and sensual and arguably Balin's masterpiece. Languid, Savannah. There's that languid word again. Yes, I was about to say that. Sensual. Still don't know what that word means. It just, languid means sensual? It doesn't. It means it takes its time. Oh, Grace okay. Lick actually wrote a song called Take Your Time about Marty Balin. Because oh. his songs were so damn long. <laughs> take your time and I'll take my own time, she sings. I like long songs. Um, yeah, but that's the idea. So I got gotcha. Languid. It, it received decades of radio play and it includes the line, I had a taste of the real world when I went down on you. Perhaps the most overt reference to oral sex in the entire decade. I have always loved this song. I've always loved Red Octopus, the album. I've had the album um, since I was a teenager, and I never believed that they were actually talking about oral sex because it was a song from the 70s. Uh-huh. Uh, but that's exactly what Balin was up to. Nice. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Today, the airplanes and starships' lyrical uh, adventures seem tame, but at the time, most references to sex were oblique. Red Octopus was the first album uh, that any of the members of Jefferson Starship would see go up to number one. Oh, that was their first number one album. Slick and Cantor and Balin all saw their first number one there. Spitfire would make it to number three, and Earth to number five in the United States. The four albums, Dragonfly, which went gold, Red Octopus, Double Platinum, Spitfire Platinum, and Earth Platinum would round out their elemental journey. So each of them reflects the four elements Mm. um, and make Jefferson Starship one of the biggest names in rock and roll. But within a year, both Gray Slick and Marty Balin would be out of the band. (gasps) (laughs) Let me start with Gray Slick. Slick had fallen in love with Starship lighting designer Skip Johnson. Who was, oh, man. She's not going to be with Kantner anymore? I mean, imagine that, right? Everything we know about Paul Kantner. Yes, right. <laughs> um, Skip Johnson was 12 years younger than she was. Mm. You don't like that? I don't like age gaps. Older woman, younger man. That's a bit of a... Especially in the 70s. That's cutting against the grain. I Sure. But yeah, but it, I don't know. Age gaps are weird. Ten years is a big difference. Kantner, who believed Johnson was gay, uh, was furious when drummer Barbata told him about Gray Slick's new relationship. Now, this may seem strange, so right? So she didn't even break up with so, Kantner? She, uh, it's, she just started... <laughs> okay, so let me explain. So... Gray Slick always slept in her own room while on the road. Um and even believed in separate bedrooms with her lovers at home. She never shared a bedroom with her partners. And they I, weren't married. They were, she was, didn't marry after her first marriage. Well, she was gonna, she's going to marry Skip Johnson. But. Mm. Oh. <laughs> Spoiler alert. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so she always has her own room. I totally love that. I think that's a great idea. So good, good on that one. I imagine for the same reason, Savannah, you would like to have your own room. Those are the those are the same reasons Grace Slick provides. It's my room. It, yes. <laughs> I need to be. You need alone. your own space. This is the argument that I she makes. I need a place for all of my Lego sets. Yeah, <laughs> for Grace Slick, there's like a time for sex and a time for everything else, and you don't need to do the same things. Like you don't need to share a bed in order to, like, just for the sex. But yeah. then you can go back to sleeping in your own bed. Yeah, she says. <laughs> My wife and I share a bed, so I don't necessarily agree with her, but um, anyhow. 
<laughs> if Kantner didn't want to see the new relationship forming, is what I'm trying to say, he didn't have to because he wasn't in her bedroom. Mm-hmm. You see what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's easy to have a an affair when. <laughs> Especially when you're on the road. And yeah. especially if you think the dude's gay. Just like, oh, that's just gay Skip. Skip's just going over and having a drink with Grace. No big deal. Uh, that's just gay Skip. <laughs> Here comes gay Skip. <laughs> by all accounts, Paul Kantner was, and you're going to be shocked by this, furious. But he got over it for the good of their child and for the good of the band. He fired Johnson. <laughs> no, really. Oh, poor gay Skip. Poor, poor not gay gay Skip. <laughs> but he eventually hired him back because Skip Johnson was so good at rock concert lighting that he was considered one of the best in the business. <laughs> That is, okay, that's awesome. That's Skip, fucking wild. Skip that must have felt so good. Big He's Skip like, energy. I'm fucking your girlfriend and I'm and, lighting your shows. Yes, <laughs> you fired me, but you still had to bring me back. Johnson would go on to marry Grace Lick, as I said, they would stay and would stay married to her for 18 years. Oh. Which is pretty good. Yeah, for, for like a quote unquote celebrity marriage. That's that's forever. <laughs> so, uh, Johnson wasn't the reason Slick left the band, but there was little Johnson could do to keep Slick from her German meltdown. The meltdown that led to her departure. German <laughs> meltdown. German meltdown. I feel like Mims had feelings about a German <laughs> meltdown. Fuck? <laughs> yes. Okay. So, <clears throat> Slick was uncomfortable with the Starship's whole 1978 European tour. Many of the band and crew had brought their families to see the continent, and the large group made travel too much of a hassle. I think Slick tended to view touring as work, and so it would be sort of like if I just brought my children to class all the time. It would Mm. get distracting and annoying. Yeah. Uh, She was also sensitive to waterborne bacteria, which she discovered on a European trip with her parents as a child. And the same problem returned on this European tour. So something about Europe's water didn't say yeah, well like with her water. Stomach. It's it's said like don't drink water if like tap water if you're traveling because in different countries yeah because shit's different and yeah your Whoa. your gut's not used to the same bacteria in that space. Probably in the U.S. you're generally okay, but if you go outside the U.S., just different countries. Different That's interesting. I never continents. thought about that. Yeah, drink drink bottled water. Anyhow, Slick was drinking that tap water because there wasn't bottled water because it was 1978. (laughs) Uh, So she was not feeling too good. She spent performances running back and forth between the stage and the toilet. I mean, imagine if your job is to perform, too. Yeah, no, that's awful. As a professor, I'm also mindful of this. Like, if you don't feel well, it sucks to have to be in front of people. Mm -hmm. Oh, and then also you're performing, so you need to drink more water. Right. (laughs) Especially for your voice. She's more sick. One night, she was fed up and refused to go on, blaming her intestinal distress. Paul Kantner exploded, getting into a fist fight with her with Skip Johnson. Slick said the band could go on ahead with just Marty Balin, but Kantner, Kantner refused, saying the Stones didn't perform without Jagger. Not exactly the, uh, the same situation, because Marty Balin had a lot of hits with Jefferson yeah. Starship. Like... The, the, I don't think the audience would have been that annoyed that Grace Lick was out, but... At the very least, they would be understandable. Probably, yeah. But, I, I mean, he's, it's, Grace Lick was a huge, is a huge name in rock and roll, so mm-hmm. you would be a little put out. I, 
but yes, it's not quite like the Stones without Jagger because they had another singer. American service members in the audience uh, found out that the band night might not be performing in Germany and trashed the stage, <gasps> which pretty much prevented them from going on even if they wanted to. Oh my God. At the next show in Hamburg, Slick went on and performed, but she was very drunk and stuck her fingers up a spectator's nose. Oh, how? Like, Isn't just... the stage relatively, like, not right next to the audience? Well, I guess, you know, standing room, the front row, they're probably yeah, like, right up like against... The barricades, like, did she just, probably, like... like Sorry, did she just, like, kneel down and Yeah, just... you could. <laughs> yeah, you it's, could. it's possible. Yeah. It's not recommended, but it's possible. <laughs> I'm sure that fan was excited about it. Hammered to the tits, well into the first song, I was inexorably attracted to a pair of nostrils in the front row. They were attached to a German guy who had no idea what was about to happen when I staggered toward him with the intention of picking his nose. He didn't seem to mind too much, or at least he was so shocked he didn't do anything. Slick <laughs> called the audience Nazis at this performance and did a Hitler <gasps> salute. What the fuck? Oh, in Hamburg. <laughs> performing for a 1978 German audience. Oh. Uh, Balin put her in a hammerlock to hold her up through the rest of her songs. She was so drunk. Whoa. Afterward, Kantner was in tears. It seemed to him at that moment that the band was finished. Slick quit the next day and flew home with Johnson, where she checked herself into a rehab clinic. Balin finished the tour and came home to go back to recording as the sole lead singer for the band. But then one day, on his way to rehearsal, he rolled down the car window. He took a deep breath, and he drove to the beach. He'd go almost 10 years before contacting any of the members of the airplane or Jefferson Starship again. So he just left again? Without a word. S- didn't finish the three albums? He did. Okay, all right. Because so. just, uh, Jefferson Starship has four albums. He was to put one song on the first one, and then he, he recorded songs with them for the rest of the four, oh, Okay. you know, the elemental quadrology. Um, and then that was it weird he's such a character this is so weird (laughs) this doesn't feel real isn't that what we're supposed to be doing on this show (laughs) what a strange ride something you haven't mentioned that Mm -hmm. i think savannah might find interesting yeah i had first like i had heard of jefferson airplane first time i heard of jefferson starship i was watching the star wars holiday special go on and they are on the star wars holiday special they are yeah what? They are in like a scene like a like a bunch of stormtroopers break into a Wookiee family's house. Uh-huh. And like put on this like virtual reality helmet and it's Jefferson Starship playing a song. Really? <laughs> yeah. That's them? Yeah. What? See, now you're impressed. I'm not impressed, <laughs> just even more weirded out. <laughs> what? Now I need to rewatch that. Ooh, I haven't watched that. Weirder those. still. Uh, yeah, like I watched it like it was like, fuck it, I'm going to watch the Star Wars holiday special. Like, you know, knowing how terrible, like notoriously terrible it is. And I'm just like, huh, what's this band? There's a starship? Was Grace Slick in the Star Wars Christmas special? Unfortunately, no. Oh, man. The rest of the band. But the yeah, rest of the band was. Yeah. That 
That's crazy. I can't believe that. I wonder why she didn't do it. Maybe she thought it was stupid. <laughs> well, it might have been the timing. It was, of yeah, it, it might have oh. been because what was it, seventy eight, seventy nine? Oh, so she left the band. It would have been during yeah. that gap. Yeah. Oh. She'll be back, but wait a sec. Kantner and the Jefferson Starship would produce four more albums, all of which went gold. Not quite as successful as the Water, Fire, and Earth albums, but still pretty good. Their most successful was Freedom at Point Zero, which was made without Slick or Balin. Mickey Thomas was brought in to sing lead vocals, and Ansley Dunbar replaced Barbada. Before Starship, Mickey Thomas was best known for singing the number three hit, Fooled Around and Fell in Love, for I know the that one. Elvin Bishop group. <laughs> I know that one, because they played it in Guardians of the Galaxy. <laughs> It's this, a good song. I like it. That's Mickey Thomas. And Mickey <laughs> Thomas is going to be around for a while. Oh. So uh, the Starship single Jane, which I love, made it to number 14 in the U.S. and number 13 in Canada. The song had been written by Freiberg from Quick Simpler Messenger Service. It was about his wife, Julia Brigden, who uh, was a like major figure in the San Francisco scene who was just known as girl with a capital G. Hmm. Um, like she, a girl, she was just known for just like streaking around th- these communes where the bands would hang out, just be girl running naked around the, hmm. the commune. Um, regular feature of the San Francisco hippie scene. Uh, Freiburg and Girl divorced the same year the song came out, which should come as no surprise if you've listened to the lyrics of the song. Jane, you're playing a game called Called Hard to Get by its real name, making believe that you just don't feel the same. Oh, Jane. Turns out she didn't feel the same. <laughs> Oof. The band... <laughs> Uh, in my opinion, with Freedom at Point Zero, the band had a harder rocking sound now, but it wasn't a huge departure from what they'd been doing for the past four albums. It's also now more of like an all-male event. And I don't, I don't even want to say that. Like, wait, the combination of Marty Balin and Grace Slick, like, you're taking out a lot of that <laughs> feminine energy with the two of them. Yeah. So it's, I'm not even really talking about male, female. It's mm-hmm. just like, of course, they're going to be have a harder rocking it's, sound. Yeah, plus just a different energy. Yeah. Uh, but Slick returned uh, after recording a solo album, so Slick was not gone forever. In total, Slick would record four solo albums in her career. Manhole, which is an intentional thing. Right. She's being gross. Mm-hmm. Um, Dreams. Welcome to the Wrecking Ball, and her last album was Software. Dreams is, I think, probably the best if you want to listen to Grace Slick's solo career. Um, But Slick wasn't a solo artist at heart. She didn't want to tour on her own. She didn't tour for any of these albums. Uh, And this was... I mean, okay, for our younger listeners who are interested in this song and for some reason in this story, and God bless you, uh, here's the deal. The music industry is the opposite of what it used to be, and it's largely Spotify's fault. So <laughs> I sucked up to them enough on the last episode. Let's, Gosh, let's get... are we allowed to shit talk Spotify now? <laughs> I mean, t- within reason, Mims. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so uh, it's not just Spotify, but Spotify's just the big dog, right? All well, of the streaming services do more or less the same. Yeah, you could. But what happened was, it. it in the 1970s and the 1960s, the way a rock band made money was by selling albums. But in order to sell albums, you had to tour. Oh. So you toured to sell albums. You didn't make a lot of money on touring, 
you made the money on the album sales and the touring was the way you promoted the album. You see what I'm saying? Okay, yeah. Now the situation is reversed because the music is no longer released on an album that you buy for $10. Now the music is released on Spotify, which you make 0.11 cents or something on, right? Yeah. It's less than that. 0. 0.0 something. Yeah, it's like 0. 0.0003. On Spotify, yeah. it's abysmal. Weird Al just made a video. Yeah, Weird Al like was the realist on this shit. He he was like, oh yeah, I got streamed like eighty million times. So like, uh, thanks for the twelve dollars. You guys bought me a sandwich or something but like. See, that. this is what's <laughs> happened. So Taylor Swift makes her money on touring a billion dollars. Oh yeah, but that's, I mean they're impossible to get those tickets. So when the Starship would tour, when Jefferson Starship was touring, they were touring to sell albums. They were mm. not. You would tour around an album usually. You release an album and then you do a big tour to sell your album. Gotcha. Now you release the music in order to sell tickets on your tour yeah. because that's your source of revenue. Interesting. But, okay. I and that's complicated. Who said it? But it was a recent a recent uh, rock artist who essentially said musicians these days are t-shirt salesmen. Yes. Because mm. most of the money you make is on merch. Well, yeah. so are podcasters. I mean, I guess the only point at which I, like, we give this shit away for free. So I, I hear musicians, except that we expect to give it away for free and that patrons will. Yeah. So it's just that we, podcasting has always operated in this world where it, it functions like this. So we were, like, born into this. Mm-hmm. Podcasting as an art form, or whatever you want to call it, was born into this. Music was not born into this. No, yeah. Music was... Music was, I don't know. Well, that makes sense. It's like sense a tidal why, wave washed over music. Yeah. It makes sense why t shirts are so fucking expensive yeah, at that, concerts. That totally <laughs> makes sense. That on top That's like $40 of, for a t shirt. That on top of a lot of venues will do merch cuts, which means, hey, you give us 15, 20% of whatever you make off of off of merch it's oh it's garbage it is garbage it. it's so uh, hard to be an artist but still the best thing you can do is buy tickets to your favorite artist yes yeah yeah support. if you can even get them well you can if you don't like taylor swift well that's true <laughs> um so this bring coming back to grace like <laughs> she didn't want to be a solo artist she didn't tour on her solo albums her solo albums remain esoteric although you can listen to them on spotify um she said i wanted to be a member of a band that's all she ever wanted. And this was consistent throughout her career. After Somebody to Love and White Rabbit had been successful for Airplane, RCA asked if she wanted to release Two Heads from their next album as a single, but she said no. She didn't want the Airplane to become her backup band. It's the opposite ethic of what we have today. So it's, I think it's good that we had this conversation in context of what Slick is saying about her solo career mm-hmm. here. Mm-hmm. It's the opposite of the, the, the... Taylor Swift herself is an affront to the Grace Slick ethic because she's a solo artist and there's never it's not taylor swift and her band who is yeah. her band who cares no one there knows. is no band yeah it doesn't matter but for slick she never wanted to be in essence gray slick she wanted to be the jefferson starship she wanted to be the jefferson airplane mm-hmm. um she wanted to be one of the boys she said the only reason i ever received any more attention than the others was that i was the only female the same thing would happen to the only goat in a pig pen Yes, I do remember yeah. her saying that. It's where the eye go. Yeah, you and I talked about it. She sang backup and made a cameo on a few songs on Modern Times before returning as a full-fledged member for Winds of Change and Nuclear Furniture. So she experimented with the solo career and said, no, I got to get back with the boys. Mm-hmm. And even though she had to, you know, like, eat some crow there, she went, went on back <laughs> home. 
these albums featured some pretty cool tracks uh i recommend stranger on modern times uh i recommend the title song for winds of change also no way out on nuclear furniture but uh, they weren't nearly as successful as the band's earlier work the band couldn't decide on a clear direction either they would remain committed to their roots as rock and roll stars or take up a more modern commercial sound the old hippies, Paul Kantner and Freiburg and Peter Kalkinen, were the rockers. But the younger, uh, Chasico and Thomas, and the latest drummer, Donnie Baldwin, were looking to capture the top of the charts. Slick was in the middle, but she ultimately sided with the young guns, telling Paul Kantner to write better songs. <laughs> <laughs> you don't tell Paul Kantner to write better songs after having a child with him and then cheating on him and then getting married to some other guy i mean beyond that <laughs> i will say as a fan of both grace lick and paul kantner paul kantner has a unique genius unto himself that i think is not to be questioned in that way like she's essentially <laughs> saying to him write more popular music oh, and he's like whoa, whoa. no i'm writing my you know freaking truth you know what i mean mm -hmm. so he quit in a huff and the band split apart yet again kantner had been the last remaining link to the original band because slick joined a year later um and he held a terrible nasty awful grudge mm-hmm when the band reformed as Starship, basically with Slick and the Young Boys, the Young Boys said that the wrong way, the Young Men. <laughs> <laughs> it's just me and the boys, me and the little it's just boys. Slick and the Young Boys. Slick and the Young Boys. <laughs> that probably could have been a band. Yeah, I was about to say that's, a, that's not a bad band name. <laughs> yeah. Anyhow, um, Paul was pissed. He sent uh, Starship members Manila envelopes full of bad reviews and nasty comments. He called the hotels that the band were staying in to say that relatives of theirs had died in imaginary car crashes. Remember Paul from the beginning last episode? How he could, you know, hire a new drummer while you're away fixing his glasses yeah. for him? This is the old Paul. <laughs> uh, and then he sued them over their use of the name Jefferson Starship. And in 1985, the band gave him a cash settlement with the name becoming property exclusively of Gray Slick and band manager Bill Thompson, but both Cantor and Slick, both the Cantor and Slick camps agreed off the record to drop use of the word Jefferson anyway, and the band simply became Starship. Interesting. Okay. And that brings us to where we've been trying to get to for the last two hours, <laughs> namely the Starship. Um, so... Uh, they kicked out Freiburg, another hippie from Quicksilver Messenger Service, who Slick said wasn't making much of a contribution any anyway, and the new band was ready to pop the top of the pop char charts. That's so interesting, though, that she like she had a full blown meltdown and left, and then like how many like it was years later. A couple years later, she's she shows back up and is like, takes "Fuck it you, over. get out! It's mine." <laughs> She sort of realizes her power to a certain extent. Uh -huh. I don't mean like it dawns on her. I think she just makes use of it for the first time in the history of this band mm -hmm. as Grace Slick, mm -hmm. the celebrity. Um, 
I want to say about Freiburg too um, that Freiburg said after Slick threw him out of the band that he should have left with Kantner because Kantner left essentially on principle and Freiburg was a hippie too so he should have gone with the old guys um, but Kantner was pissed because he hadn't made the choice to leave with him so oh, even no. though Freiburg got kicked uh, out there was bad blood between them ever oh, afterward boy. I mean sometimes there is just like that I'm just going to stick around and see how this goes. If it goes like shit, I'm out. He was trying but, to do that, yeah, but Kantner felt like he'd been betrayed. Yeah. Yeah. All right, let's do this now. It's time to build this motherfucking city. <laughs> the newest and final version of the band released their first album produced by Peter Wolf in 1985, Knee Deep in the Hoopla. The title was a lyric a from terrible the terrible name. Well, <laughs> it was a lyric from the song. Oh, no. Uh, The song would blast Starship to the highest heights of popular music, namely, We Built This City. The song entered the Billboard charts in September of 1985 at number three, and by November, it was the country's number one song, unseating the theme to the TV police drama, Miami Vice. Oh! (laughs) The charts are for idiots. Like, I hate the charts. Come on. The, The theme to Miami Vice. Did you know the Ken song from the Barbie movie made it onto of the charts? Of course it did. <laughs> uh, currently, or at least like two days ago, the English, like the British iTunes charts uh, is a uh, song from an upcoming episode of Doctor Who about eating babies. Oh. The point I'm trying to make here is <laughs> that the band that Jefferson Airplane had made possible had achieved a top song for the first time with Grace Slick as the only member who had ever even been in the airplane. And Slick wasn't even there at the beginning. And now, let's decide what this song has to say. First, the chorus. We built this city. We built this city on rock and roll. I'm going to try to do this as shatnery as possible. Okay. That's not actually the full chorus, but that's how the song begins. It's a line most Americans, if not most people in the Western world, have heard at some point. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in the U.S., at least, continue to hear in mall food courts and wawas and dentists' offices with some consistency. Now we know what city Starship we're referring to. San Francisco, of course. Mm-hmm. They created the San Francisco sound. Not Starship, but at least Grace Slick was somewhere for it. The song itself clues us in. Although none of the lyrics say what city they're singing about, a voiceover cuts in. A strange moment in an already strange song, with the speaker assuming the role of a San Francisco disc jockey. The only other song that springs to mind, and there are other songs that do this, I mean, especially now, we hear a lot of like voiceovers that are speaking, but uh, there's Thriller with Vincent Price, and then the other one is the Meatloaf song, Paradise by the Dashboard That was Lights. the first one that came to <laughs> yeah. my mind. It's more in this, Meatloaf yeah. is more in this era, but also the Vincent Price and Thriller. Um, but that's basically what happens in the middle of this song. The voiceover is performed by Les Garland, who says... Looking out over that Golden Gate Bridge, and I'm seeing that bumper-to-bumper traffic. Garland was a friend of Airplane Starship Manager, Airplane Starship Manager Bill Thompson. No relation to me. (laughs) Garland, I don't think. Garland had been the program director of four major radio stations, including KFRC in San Francisco. Think about that for a second. So the guy who's doing the voiceover has a link to San Francisco radio. 
He was also the programming head of MTV, which was quickly taking over how music was marketed to the masses with its music videos. This is in 1985, right? It's when the song comes out. So Les Garland, who has ties to both San Francisco radio and MTV, is doing the voiceover. And the voiceover is talking about that Golden Gate Bridge. Mm -hmm. Clearly, this song is about San Francisco. Garland, like Starship, had gone on a journey from San Francisco to the center of 80s pop music. He's basically the same guy as he is Starship, but in DJ form. (laughs) Right? Okay. (laughs) Um, The producer, Wolf, told Garland to just say something to get a feel for what it would sound like, and they used his very first take in the actual song. But what Garland said is fairly remarkable if it was wholly improvised. Not only did he make the only reference in the whole song to San Francisco, even though he'd also worked at a radio station in Los Angeles and Boston and Windsor, Ontario, so he could have mentioned any of those, but instead he mentioned San Francisco. And remember, the guy was just like, say anything. But Mm -hmm. he said San Francisco. But Well, Golden Gate Bridge. But he also referenced the Golden Gate Bridge over the bridge of the song. Let me just take a moment for that. Now, Mims, what is the bridge? It is like the part between the second chorus and the last chorus. This, Most I believe, of the time. is the only bridge in the history of bridges where a voiceover talks about a bridge. Uh, <laughs> I'm about to write the second. <laughs> oh, I'm delighted. <laughs> I'll see what I can do. It's a bridge containing a bridge. Come on. That's Yay. amazing. Yeah. Woo. Anyway. <laughs> I'm so impressed. It is one of the few, if not the only bridge, to reference an actual bridge, is what I'm trying to say. Mickey Thomas claimed that the song was not about San Francisco, but was about how rock and roll had built any and all cities the world over. Les Garland calls this city the city by the bay, the city that rocks, the city that never sleeps. The Bay reference points to San Francisco again, but the city that never sleeps is a nickname for... New York. New York. So it's starting to not make any sense. Maybe Thomas is right that the city being built is all cities, but it's impossible to ignore Starship's link to San Francisco. Slick, after all, was still a key member of the band, and her voice was front and center on this track. Someone must have coached Garland, or Garland assumed that the city referenced in the song sung by Starship had to be the former home of the airplane. His slip on the city that never sleeps could simply be chalked up to the fact that he didn't know that they were using that take, and Wolf and Company chose to include it on Thomas's premise that the city is actually any city, even though it makes much more sense that it's just San Francisco. You following me? Yes. We built one of these fucking cities on rock and roll. Not sure which one, though. (laughs) Pick a city. This is going to get worse when you get to the music video, by the way. Let's move on to the verses. Say you don't know me or recognize my face. Say you don't care who goes to that kind of place. Knee deep in the hoopla, sinking in your fight. Too many runaways eating up the night. If I sang this at all, I believe we would get sued. Um, Uh, If you sing it like shit, then then you you should be fine. We're covered under parody, then. It's difficult not to read what I've just said. Um, Say you don't care who goes, keep knee deep in the hoopla, sinking in the fight, too many runaways. It's difficult not to read this as a reflection of the infighting that took place in the earlier two iterations of the band, particularly the split that formed the starship itself. Say you don't know me or recognize my face, right? Sinking in the fight. These are the internal fights of the band, right? Particularly uh, the split that formed Starship, right? As the band changed with the times, it became unrecognizable to its founders. You don't recognize my face. Oh, okay. 
Kaokanen and Cassidy left to play the Blues. Balin left and returned and left again for good. And then Kantner was driven out of a group he'd led for almost 20 years. Say you don't know me. The hoopla is the press attention, but also the band members' own arrogance and addiction issues, which in turn caused them each to sink in their fight in their own way. Think about slick and alcohol. And then the runaways eating up the night draw the band's personal dramas out into the city, complete with a clever reference to one of Balin's hits with Jefferson Starship, namely his song, Runaway. Hmm. During the summer of love, it was the marketing created by rock and roll that brought teenage runaways streaming into San Francisco to be part of the scene. But there were too many of these kids, literally, for neighborhoods like Haight-Ashbury to sustain. Homelessness proliferated and hard drugs surfaced as dealers descended on the city to take advantage of the chaos. The San Francisco hippies' own popularity, which Starship and the Grateful Dead, uh, not Starship, Jefferson Airplane and the Grateful Dead basically helped to sell. Mm. They brought all these kids who left home and ran to the city ended up being the undoing of the city itself of its own hippie counterculture huh too many people to sustain too many runaways the san francisco's hippies unpopularity was their undoing not unlike how jefferson airplane's popularity and commercialization caused the members to experience existential and artistic angst. So the fall, downfall of the city because of its popularity, not the city of San Francisco survived, but what didn't was hate Ashbury. The hippie San Francisco crashed under its own weight. Uh-huh. And so did Airplane crash under its own popularity. Mm-hmm. The chorus comes back, but it's expanded. Marconi plays the mamba. Mamba. Listen to the radio. Don't you remember we built this city on rock and roll? To begin, Marconi does not play the mamba. Guglielmo Marconi is credited with inventing the radio. Do you know that? Mm -hmm. You knew that, right? Which he did by conducting a series of experiments expanding the distance radio waves could travel between 1894 and 1902. Arguably, he stole it all from people like uh, Tesla, but it's neither here nor there. Everybody (laughs) stole from Tesla. It's just what you did. Marconi was dead by the late 1930s, the time the Mambo was developed by Cuban artists out of the Danzon and popularized in the United States, a phenomenon I talk about in my world performance class. Interestingly, the Mambo was the most popular dance music in America before the advent of rock and roll. Marconi to Mamba seems to reference all the music that preceded rock. Marconi plays the Mamba is saying all the music from the invention of radio until the very last dance craze before rock and roll was invented. Listen to the radio. You see what the lyric means there? I was honestly always kind of confused about that. Like that (laughs) makes sense now. It seems to, that is, except for the fact that the musical genre, let me say this once more, or now much more to the point, was the mambo, not the mamba, as the Jefferson lyrics. Starship, oh, this is the Starship lyrics have it, no Jefferson. There is no such thing as a mamba, but that's what they're singing. And if you look up the lyrics, it will say Marconi plays the mamba. In short, the line, Marconi plays the mamba, is pop music nonsense. I would say it has a postmodern quality. The sounds are pleasant together with the repeating M sounds and Marconi links conceptually with Starship's command that we listen to the radio. But the words don't mean much. So yes, I did just pitch you that it could mean all of the music from Marconi to the Mamba. But in fact, there's no such thing as a Mamba. 
So it's really just bullshit. Stay this with whole me. thing just sounds like bullshit to me. This is what Slick was known for in the airplane. When she sang supporting vocals, she would improvise lyrics that drew on the meaning of the core song, but only tangentially. In She Has Funny Cars, Balin sings, Some Have It Night Nice, Flash Paradise, and Sling sings, Slick sings, Fat and Round. She's improvising. She just says whatever occurs to okay. her. Okay. Um, more famously, in Paul Kantner's Puneal, she works her way around through the syllables of the word to armadillo for no other reason than that she wanted to sing armadillo in the background. The song has nothing to do with an armadillo. It's a fun word to say. No. I imagine it'd be even more fun to sing. So Marconi plays the mamba. Yeah, it is. <laughs> These non sequiturs were, in fact, a hallmark of late 60s countercultural music. I mean, just think about the band names. Strawberry Alarm Clock, for example. At the end of the door song, Touch Me, the band, for no reason at all, sings a tagline from a commercial. Stronger than dirt. <laughs> come on, come on, now touch me, babe. Go ahead and listen to this. Stronger than dirt. They clearly say it at the end. It has nothing to do with the song. Marconi plays the mamba is sung... Uh, for far more polished and, and sung in a far more intentional and polished way, something like Strawberry Alarm Clock's Insects, Incense and Peppermints, also a 60s psychedelic rock anthem. The line isn't a product of the 60s, but it cues the audience into the surrealism of the sound that birthed the band. Still, this is not to say that the song itself is surrealist or Dadaist in overall aesthetic. That would be a ridiculous claim, Savannah. This isn't Captain Beefheart, and it isn't Alan Hall. Well, damn it, I thought it was. But it's not. The line itself is more Laurie Anderson than anything else, and it's meant to reference the 60s. It certainly references past radio transmissions and popular music. Think back to a simpler time, Starship says, when you listened to the radio. Don't you remember a time when we were more pure, more innocent, maybe better than the commercialized products we've become? The last sentiment feels like a stretch, but it won't in the next verse. So Marconi plays the mamba. They're just saying, Savannah, think back to a simpler time when Marconi played the mamba. That was my favorite time. I feel like this this whole thing is making me realize I don't understand music. Oh, it's going to be. You just hold that thought. Hold that thought, buddy. I just buddy. want to go back to Paul Simon. You can call me Al. So, see? What does that mean? I don't know. Starship Sings. Fun. So, someone's always playing corporation games. Who cares? They're always changing corporation names. The corporation is not, in my opinion, a large capitalist conglomerate, although they certainly play a role in what Starship is singing about here. The Starship themselves have become a corporation, a business enterprise. But not only in their pop music 80s iteration, the corporatization had started with the airplane when the band was still as artistically uncompromised as they would ever be. As the airplane that appeared on Johnny Carson's Tonight Show, Slick sung sitting backwards, by the way, on a carousel horse and ended the song by shoving the microphone up the horse's ass. They were also on Ed Sullivan, Dick Clark's American Bandstand, and as I mentioned on Dick Cavett. They were a commercial enterprise, even when they were artistically pure. They performed at a pricey benefit for the Friends of the Whitney Museum, where Slick insulted the wealthy donors by suggesting their husbands never slept with them. They'd become a household name and a profit driver for RCA, Corporation Games. One night at the Fillmore East, Slick, who was known for indulging in rants between and within songs, that shocks you, I'm sure, <laughs> got into a doozy right in the middle of Somebody to Love. She would often, I think, as the band is riffing during Somebody to Love, she would often go off on these tangents. 
and she said to the anti-authoritarian hippie crowd in front of her, You know the people you're rising up against? They're also in the White House, but they're also right here. Because you had to pay to get in here, it wasn't free. You're paying our asses so I can send up and have a shrimp salad and all that shit. You can't, and I'm a jerk, because I love it. Take it from me. Grab it from me. I got what you want. Get it. Grab it. Fondle it. Slick may have been driven by guilt, but her honesty cut through a lot of the bullshit around the selling of hippie music. The airplane may have been the least corporate of the band's iterations, but they successfully sold their brand to an international audience. This is the deep irony of all the most successful music of the late 1960s. They preached an anti-establishment message that the establishment then sold to young Western audiences in America, Canada, Europe, and Australia. Despite all of the idealism of the 60s, there was also a lot of ambivalence. Los Angeles's Buffalo Springfield sang, What a field day for the heat. A thousand people in the street. Singing songs and carrying signs mostly say, Hooray, for side. The Who asked us to meet the new boss. Same as the old boss. Not exactly a ringing endorsement for progressive politics. On the airplane's penultimate album, Bark, they sang, Rome, she cut our armies down and left them, left them in the snow. So now I go to where I come from, now I go home to the sun. Moses, Moses, the Red Sea closes over you when you least expect it to. There's a sense that the idealism couldn't be sustained, that the establishment rose up, that the hippies were drowning. Starship continues in their song, we just want to dance here, but someone stole the stage. They call us irresponsible, write us off the page. This feels like a callback to the airplane's performance at Bakersfield, where kids under 16 weren't allowed to dance. Remember that? Mm -hmm. And so the police kept everyone from dancing until Paul pointed out that the audience was much larger than the police. They were the establishment, and we were the anti-establishment, taking back the dance and the stage. Later in the song, police have got the chokehold, and the countercultural rockers have just lost the beat. Starship is both the villain and the hero, fighting the power but also being subsumed by it to do its bidding, a bargain that enriches the artists but leaves them with an uneasy feeling about what they may have given up. After Paul left, I remained the last shred of the original airplane lineup, and I enjoyed an easy ride. I was surrounded by friends and good traveling companions. The congenial atmosphere made our pop more middle-of-the-road music tolerable, and the three chart-toppers supported our various families of children, dogs, grandmothers, and mortgages. Don't you remember? Remember, we built this city. What'd we build it on, Rob? Who counts the money, Mims, underneath the bar? Who rides the wrecking ball? into our guitars. The Wrecking Ball seems to be a reference to Slick's third solo album, Welcome to the Wrecking Ball. As for the money, Airplane and Starship had three managers. Their most recent, Bill Thompson, served the band more or less without issue for decades, including and even after the Starship years. Before him was the Fillmore venue owner and promoter Bill Graham, who was mostly fine but worked the band too hard. And before him was Matthew Katz who only represented the band in their first year but made a decades-long negative impression. Katz had been pressuring the band to sign an artist contract with him for months and finally convinced them when the airplane got an offer from RCA. Katz told them falsely that they needed management before they could work with RCA. Under pressure to secure the record deal, the band members signed, with Signe Tolley Anderson the last holdout, waiting until the day she went into the studio to record. Katz also told them that as their manager, they had to make him their music publisher giving him the rights to their songs and receiving 20% in return. Was that true, Mims? Fuck no. Not true. 
Katz endorsed Ooh. checks made out to the airplane by calling himself their power of attorney, but he didn't deposit the money they received. By the time they fired him in September of 66, there was only $3,500 in the account. The band had performed with popular singer-songwriter Jackie DeShannon, and they told DeShannon about Katz's management, and DeShannon, who had more experience in the business, did not split hairs. He told them to fire Katz right away. A series of lawsuits followed that worked their way through the courts. As the band's manager, Katz was forbidden by California law from booking the band. He was allowed to receive booking calls but not place them. But Katz was doing it anyway, and the Supreme Court of California eventually decided that this voided his contract with the airplane. The band's money from RCA was held up because of this legal dispute to the tune of 20 years worth of royalties since the case wasn't resolved until 1988. Holy fuck! At that point, the royalties amounted to $1.3 million plus $700,000 in interest. Katz received $130,000 and the band received the rest. The song, though, for Starship was recorded in 85 before this was resolved. Who counts the money underneath the bar? So the wrecking ball, the police with their chokehold, and the man counting money underneath the bar, not to mention the city of San Francisco, tell a story through the song of a band's entire journey, from psychedelic indie stardom to commercial success with all of its ambivalent joys. Gird yourselves now. I've been girded. Except that the song doesn't do that. Or at least, it doesn't do it intentionally. Because, and here's the twist... Not a single member of Airplane or Starship participated in the writing of the song. What? Really? At all? All that close reading I just did doesn't actually make sense because none of the band members participated. Who wrote the song? The song We Built the City was written by Martin Page and Bernie Taupin. Anybody know Bernie? Best known as Elton John's lyricist. Oh. Featured in the movie about Elton John recently. John is a British rocker whose first album came out in 1969, but wasn't released in the U.S. He played no role in the San Francisco scene or sound. Uh, He arrived in the U.S. to tour in October 1970, more than a year after Woodstock. And his music, with Toppin's lyrics, while often excellent, I do love Elton John, has never been particularly subversive. I hope you don't mind that I wrote down in the words, how wonderful life is. While you're in the world. Aw, it's so cute. Not quite the same, though, as no. what I've been discussing with Airplane and Jefferson Starship. His lyrics could be strange, and his stage performance was a revelation, but it was always next to impossible to identify a clear target for Elton John's music or Bernie Taupin's lyrics. Many fans believed that the madman across the water, for example, was Richard Nixon, and Bernie Taupin said, that's genius. I never could have thought of that. So fans would interpret Taupin's lyrics to have politics Whoa. that he never wrote into them. It's a good, it, I don't want to say a good grift, but I mean like it's... <laughs> it worked, worked for him. Yeah, if, if, if it works, if the shoe fits, fuck it. And he is one of the writers of this song, Bernie Taupin. When Starship recorded their first album as a reconstituted band, they abandoned the practice of writing their own music for the first time and invited submissions, choosing the songs most likely to be hits. 
Whoa, this is... Whoa, I can't Uh believe that Gray Slick is, like, cool with this. Toppin and Page wrote, We built the city to protest the closing of rock clubs in Los Angeles in the 1980s. It was coincidence or perhaps a product of the fact that the lyrics were open-ended enough that they reflected the very similar decline of the hippie scene in San Francisco. That was never intended, though. The music video is particularly apt at displaying how the song meant every city and no city all at once. The song comes in over the image of a pastoral hillside dotted with houses that look nothing like any kind of city, let alone San Francisco. As Mickey Thomas does his best cool guy dance in the middle of the screen, still images of totally radical and kind of bummed out teenagers fill the shot around him, covering the hillside town, which is still unaccountably in the background. Thomas then leads these teenagers to a mock-up of the Lincoln Memorial where he plaintively sings, We built this city to the president who ended American slavery. The group having presumably relocated to Washington, D.C., where the memorial famously sits. Lincoln stands and pumps his fist in the air, singing along with Thomas, but none of the teenagers seem remotely impressed by the surreal turn of events. Lincoln is the first overwrought suggestion that the song is making some kind of political critique, but what that critique is... mm. The second one comes when the scene changes. Slick arrives, singing about corporation games games over the image of a casino. Slick gazes intensely into the camera the same way she'd done on screen for decades, except now with bigger hair and shoulder pads, and she gamely acts out the lyrics as teenagers gather around her. A pair of dice fall from a tower and start rolling down the street after them. It's likely that the video is making a commentary on the thin line between investing and gambling, and that's fair enough. But the city of the title has gone from a sleepy hamlet to Washington, D.C., to Las Vegas, the skyline of which scrolls across the screen. How or why Vegas is guilty of wrecking rock music isn't clear. (laughs) Anyone can explain that to me. Maybe it has something to do with Wayne Newton. Um, Sleepy Hamlets, the federal government, and the gambling industry seem to be in league against music clubs if you're reading the symbols of the music video. But this is not a conspiracy theory I've ever heard before. Then, after the bridge about a bridge, we see the Golden Gate Bridge and Starship start playing music atop a skyscraper in a nod to an actual event in the history of the airplane. This is for real. Jefferson Airplane was the first band to do a rooftop concert. Remember with Rip Torn? Uh, And this image... Uh, on which the Starship music video, and this is the image on which the Starship music video ends. It's hard to believe that the overlap of San Francisco, which was synonymous with the airplane and the rooftop concert, aren't intentional. In this way, even the music video seems to want to suggest that the song is somehow about the band's psychedelic past, even though it's not. The tie-ins with Airplane and the Starship albums and songs were entirely, or at least largely, accidental. Ultimately, as the videos parade through a few thematically unrelated cities and one non-city demonstrates, what made the song resonate was its ability to reflect the mass music industry as a whole. We Built This City was a song written by committee. In addition to Toppin and Page, it was credited to producer Paul Wolf and songwriter Dennis Lambert, four people, Oof. ironing out the idiosyncrasies of its creators to appeal to a mass audience. This also made the words less specific than they otherwise might have been. I do an exercise in my class when I'm talking about commercial art. I tell my students to look for music that they enjoy that doesn't make the top 40 because it's more likely to speak to their uniqueness as individuals. Last semester, a couple of students pushed back, telling me that Taylor Swift spoke to their uniqueness. 
their uniqueness, I said, and that of tens of millions of other middle-class white women. Doesn't feel so special anymore, does it? <laughs> yeah, you guys need to start listening to Fish in a Birdcage, too. Damn straight. And tennis. <laughs> the resonance between Toppin's 1980s and the Airplane's 1960s suggests the degree to which popular music, as it has been constituted in the United States since the advent of rock and roll, that is to say, as an art form that subverts cultural norms, must carry around the terrific shame of its own commercialism. What makes We Built This City so glorious, I still love it, even though of all, even in spite of all these things, is its shamelessness in the face of its own crass contradictions. The fact that Rolling Stone would call this the worst song of an era full of terrible music. This was the decade when the Beach Boys sang Kokomo and Mickey was so fine he blew my mind and Millie Vanilli existed. I was about to say existed. <laughs> speaks to how brazen Starship was in manifesting a deep contradiction the music business still pretends not to recognize. Millie Vanilli is not the worst of the 80s. It's this song. Do you see? Okay. This song pisses the music industry off. It pisses Rolling Stone off. It pisses the rock critic, the literati of the rock world off on a deep level that even You're So Fine You Blew My Mind does not piss them off. Even Kokomo, the complete undoing of a band that was the height of 60s harmonies right and lyrics they don't they, that song is not the worst it's this one hmm. why are they so angry i'll tell you <laughs> a song that laments corporate greed on the most commercially successful album album ever produced by any incarnation of airplane starship also perfectly captures the intense irony of the hippie movement and perhaps rock general uh, rock in general from punk to rap, to grunge. Music that has all started as subversion and become commercialized. Protest songs written to fight the establishment were packaged, marketed, and sold by the establishment and made the artists who wrote them rich and famous and the executives who owned the means of production even richer than the artists. Think about Spotify again. Mm -hmm. When the 60s counterculture took over mass culture as it had dreamed of doing, it may have successfully shifted attitudes around sex and perhaps also war and violence, but it was subsumed by and became a product of capitalism, which it joined rather than beat. FYI, friends, we're still in capitalism. The 60s didn't undo it. Neither did Kurt Cobain. This tension is most obviously what splintered Jefferson Starship and also uh, Jefferson Airplane. On Bark, the album that best captures the experience of their decline, it's Jorma Kakunen who writes in his song, Third Week in Chelsea, As dawn light closed around me, my head was still in gear, thinking, of th with thoughts, of, thinking thoughts of playing more and singing loud and clear trying to reach a friend somewhere and make that person smile, maybe pull myself away from that old lonesome mile. All my friends keep telling me that it would be a shame to break up such a grand success and tear apart a name. Emptiness ain't where it's at, and neither's feeling pain. The airplane, this ultimate expression, right, of subversiveness and, and deep feeling on the part of the artists becomes, for Kalkinen at least, and, and probably I think all the band members, an empty painful experience because it, of its success in part hmm. 14 years later the starship sang don't tell us you need us because we're the ship of fools 
looking for America, coming through your schools. The image of the ship was actually central to Airplane and Starship, particularly for Paul Kantner, who had only just been ejected from the band. For Kantner, the ship was a means to escape a corrupt and dying society. In Wooden Ships, which he wrote with David Crosby while out on the water, a song both Airplane and Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young recorded, he told the silver people on the shoreline to leave us be. Blows Against the Empire was an entire album about Kantner's free-thinking hippie freaks hopping on a ship, <laughs> a starship. Um, and the inspiration for the band's change in names, heading to the final frontier to create a new society. But Kantner was gone. And Starship's Ship of Fools was not an idealistic spaceship. It was a ship of fools. Centuries ago, before the advent of the asylum, people deemed to be insane were placed on ships and put out to sea, floating from dock to dock to seek provisions. These people were, as the hippie culture imagined themselves, and rock culture ever afterward imagined itself to be, unable to fit into regular society. They actually put the insane on boats. Whoa. I had no idea. This is true. That's yeah, fucked that, up. That's, yeah, that's... In the case, and, and this is how the hippies saw themselves uh -huh. as the ship of fools, but it's Starship in the 80s with their big hair and their shoulder pads who are singing, we are the ship of fools. In the case of many of the airplane members, particularly Slick, it was true enough that they were unable to fit into regular society. I think I have proved to you that Paul Kantner and Grace Slick <laughs> cannot reasonably fit into regular no. society. But these people also had lost touch with reality, a common product of too much fame and wealth. Starship were the fools in more ways than they let on. The commercialized lunatics of Starship weren't threatening to render your child a culture-disrupting free thinker, although that's likely what Taupin imagined. In the context of We Built This City, they were coming to your schools like Instagram or TikTok to make your children mindlessly desperate for the attention of others and anxious to conform for the sake of popularity. This, in my opinion, is what makes this song great, rather than awful. There's nothing especially secret about its commercial message, and when you dig down a layer, it becomes something something wonderful and terrifying. Remember the Mamba <laughs> that Savannah couldn't wrap her head around? The song just doesn't care that Marconi never played it, not to mention the fact that the word itself doesn't exist. And that's the point. The song doesn't give a shit. Fuck you for trying to give a fuck about any of this. It's all meaningless nonsense. I love this song for its brilliant takedown of itself. It is a perfect cap on the airplane's career and the perfect tragic end of an arc. The Starship would go on to produce two more albums and two more number one hits. The first, Sarah, was also on Knee Deep in the Hoopla. Wolf was so good at picking hits for this album that he listed City and Sarah as the first and second tracks. He knew Shit. that they would be the ones to go to number one, and they did. The third number one, Nothing's Gonna Stop Us Now, was on their second album and written for a movie about mannequins who come to life. This is true. Oh? Yes. Slick quit uh, before the third and final album, which nobody cared about or listened to, and she came to regret her time with Starship despite its great commercial success. Slick prided herself on her iconoclasm and age-appropriate pragmatism and thought it was strange to be singing Put Your Hand in My Hand and Don't Ever Look Back on the Mannequin Song. 
It was a song for teenagers, not a woman in her 40s. In fact, Slick was the oldest woman to have a number one single with Nothing's Gonna Stop Us Now at the age of 47, beating her own achievement with We Built This City in 1985 when she was 46. Oh, shit, really? That's true. I mean, I don't know if that's that was true at the time. I mean, it's not true now, but It it's... may actually. I, we could look this up. Oh, Brandy Carlisle, I don't know how old she is. Anyway, <laughs> uh, we could look this up. I don't know how long this record stood. For me, the 80s incarnation of Starship that Paul left felt entirely opposite from the 1969 version of Airplane. It was almost like having two different occupations. The two bands had different focuses, purposes, and conduct. One was a circus and one was a musical shopping mall. The descent of Jefferson Airplane gradually transforming from rock avant-gardists, the rock avant-gardists they began as in 1965, into the insufferable pop superstars they became in 1985 is sometimes read as a parallel of rock music's own descent. But that forces us to imagine that all 80s rock is crap, just waiting for the new Seattle sound to kick in, kick us back into gear in the 90s. While I've heard this from some of my more uncultured peers at least more than once, such a generalization requires that we overlook the genius of, and feel free to list more in the comments, Roxy Music, The Talking Heads, Tears for Fears, Sade, The Pointer Sisters, Kate Bush, Laurie Anderson, Depeche Mode, Joy Division, or, and New Order, Echo and the Bunnymen, not to mention Mike and the Mechanics, Squeeze, Elvis Costello, Thomas Dolby, Dev, Devo, and Grace Jones. I'm personally a fan of Bon Jovi and Dokken. <laughs> Killing me. <laughs> <laughs> talking heads they're weird there you go i like their songs well david byrne never hurt anybody <laughs> uh, when what starship's journey to build this city really shows us is how the trip to the top of the pop charts is a drop down into the depths of musical and lyrical hell the Beatles had a whole bunch of number one songs, and some of them rose above bubblegum pop, but I know firsthand that none of their most daring and interesting tracks were on that compilation album. It's possible to create something that's both popular and has depth and purpose, but such a creation is profoundly rare. When Paul McCartney visited the airplane in San Francisco, Slick said it was like receiving a blessing from the Dalai Lama. <laughs> the Beatles' achievement in the late 1960s was remarkable and anomalous, and none of the Beatles themselves were ever able to replicate it, despite their extensive and also often impressive, if uneven, solo careers. More often than not, an artist has to choose between mass popularity and creative integrity. This can lead us to make the association fallacy that the more popular something is, the worse it must be artistically. That's also too simplistic. The truth is... Humans en masse generally like some pretty terrible stuff, like fast food, and the Fast and the Furious franchise, and Jimmy <laughs> Fallon, and Twitter, now called X, and iPhone no, games. We don't call Twitter. it X. But sometimes, humans en masse like good stuff too, like Stevie Wonder, or the first season of Twin Peaks, or Dark Souls, or Tom Hanks. I only say the first season because the second season wasn't as commercially popular, but the second season, of course, superior. Anyway. Or Baldur's Gate. Baldur's Gate. <laughs> All right. Rob, to, it's one of the best games ever made. Okay. I, I don't know. I don't know. I just can't speak to it. I can't speak to him, it. Not arguing I'm against it. I'm going to have an hour, three hour long episode talking about why it's the best game ever oh, made. I'll have to play it first. Can I join in on that one? <laughs> to yes. paraphrase Theodore Adorno, we shouldn't assume that the popularity of any given cultural product has anything to do with its quality. The correlation is incidental, not intrinsic. Let's bring it on home. After Slick quit Starship, she reunited with the Airplane members to create a new album. The Starship's final album would yield no chart-topping singles, and the album itself would climb to a disappointing 64 on the album charts, more than 50 places behind where the band had charted with Slick. 
the reunited Jefferson Airplane's self-titled final album would make it to number 85. Kalkinen and Cassidy continued to play together, and Kalkinen actually scored a record contract with Columbia and was nominated for a Grammy in the traditional folk category in 2003. Also, Cassidy and Kalkinen recorded the film score for Moonlight Mile. Kantner recorded a kind of memoir, A Guide Through the Chaos, in 1996 and continued to live in San Francisco and make music for the rest of his life. He reconstituted Jefferson Starship, and they toured until 2015. He died in 2016 of a heart attack. Coincidentally, he died on the exact same day, January 28th, as Airplane's original female lead singer, Signe Tolley Anderson. Oh. Yeah. That's kind of weird. Marty Balin toured with Kantner's new Jefferson Starship until 2005. He came Oh, back. Marty's back again. <laughs> and he pursued an avid interest in painting once his music career abated. He died in 2018 in Tampa, Florida. Slick made two appearances with Kantner's band in 1995 and post-9-11 in 2001. I won't get into that post-9-11 performance, but look it up. Gray Slick did more shocking things. Okay. (laughs) Otherwise, she has retired from music and, like Balin, taken up painting. She published her autobiography in 1998 and turned her attention to advocacy for animal rights. In 1996, the airplane was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and in 2016, they received a Lifetime Achievement Award from the Grammys, an institution that had all but ignored the band in their various incarnations for the long heyday of their career. They're certainly not the only band. There are a variety of excellent bands who have never received a Grammy. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Is Grace still alive? She is. Oh, okay. As of this recording. As of, yeah. I think it is no coincidence that Ro- may, may she live many more years. It is. I think it is no coincidence that Rolling Stone selected Starship for the honor of having created the worst song of the '80s. John Wenner, founder of the magazine, recently found himself kicked out of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame's board, a Hall of Fame he helped to found, by the way, when he made comments to the New York Times about his recent book, The Masters. His book featured a cast of all-white male rockers talking about what Wenner characterized as the philosophy of rock music. When asked by the New York Times why he excluded women, Wenner said, It's not that they're not creative geniuses. It's not that they're inarticulate. Although, go have a deep conversation with Grace Slick or Janis Joplin. Please, be my guest. (laughs) Oh my god! What a jackass. Although I haven't had a conversation with Slick... I would love to, Grace, if you're out there. I've cited her liberally. And if I can say anything about Slick's analysis of the music she created, Grace Slick, more than most of her generation, was tuned into the fact that the counterculture was also a commercial enterprise. Slick saw the whole thing for what it was. Her self-critical stance removed some of the romanticism from the music, but at the same time, it rendered it more beautiful and complex for its honesty. Similarly, Starship, but particularly their song, We Built This City, pulled back the curtain to reveal the crass commercialism that has always coexisted with countercultural posturing in popular music. Yes, rock music could be subversive, but it could also be incredibly corporate and opportunist, and sometimes it could be all of those things in the same breath. It can be. It is. I'm talking about it in the past tense because many consider rock to be more or less finished. I don't know if that's true. The blend of these things is part of what made rock music great. 
the rocker preening and harmonizing to entertain the masses and then stick a finger in the audience's eye is a kind of sublime hero on a tragic comic quest for truth. Wenner, whose self-image relies in large part on the aura of rock rather than its reality, would naturally find this song, and perhaps even Slick herself, more offensive than most in the way they defined what this music is and what it was meant to be. Police have got the chokehold, and we've just lost the beat. We built this city, after all. We built this city on rock and roll. Thank you for riding along with us. Please watch your step as you exit and take and remember to take all personal belongings with you.